There are a few people who have been around longer in Democratic Party politics and have better insights into how to win and lose elections than Terry McAuliffe. He was for years one of the top fundraisers for his good friends, Bill and Hillary Clinton, and then later served as chair of the Democratic National Committee. He was elected governor of Virginia and was widely talked about as a possible 2020 presidential candidate. Last April, after looking hard at a run, McAuliffe took himself out of the race and now seems to have his sights on another run as governor. But there are wild cards down the road, including the growing prospect that the battle for the Democratic nomination may not be settled by the time the primaries are over. And for the first time in modern memory, there could be a brokered convention. Might there yet be a McAuliffe boomlet for president? We'll discuss that and much more with McAuliffe himself on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. Terry McAuliffe, former governor of Virginia, former DNC chairman, current author, and uh, all-purpose political wise man. Welcome to Skullduggery. Great to be with you. Right. Glad I haven't seen you in a dog's age. Good to be back with you. <laughs> well, you, you know, you have an age. As he got the Washington Nationals watch. Congrats. Oh yeah, we did uh, quite well. Oh, Although we great. just lost Anthony Rendon yeah, this morning. A Big package, though. Disappointing. But you kept yeah. your ace pitch, pitcher. So. Yeah, Strasburg. All right. As we are speaking, the House Judiciary Committee is uh, about to vote to impeach President Trump. Politically, does this make sense to you? Okay, let's not talk about the constitutional arguments, the right thing to do. I can tell you, so in Virginia this year, we just had gigantic elections. We won the House, Senate, now the governor's mansion for the first time in 26 years. Impeachment actually helped us. His voters are coming out no matter what. It reminded people on our side how important elections are and you need to vote. So we had a record vote turnout. We were off, off year. No federal candidates, no statewide, only our General Assembly and our local candidates. And we went from like a 21% to 44% turnout. That was driven, I would say, in large part due to Trump and the issues around impeachment. And and I make the point, I think, Michael, we're going to beat him next year. I really do. I look at three states. We lost by 77,000 votes. And what happened? The next day, people woke up and said, holy cow, (laughs) how did this happen? 92 million people did not vote. Many of them said they will never miss an election again. They didn't vote. They didn't like Hillary or Hillary was going to win. Whatever. They didn't vote. You saw the 17, the first test, Virginia, the biggest pickup in over 100 years. 18, we won the House, the biggest popular vote win in 140 years. We won eight state chambers. We won seven governors, hundreds and hundreds of state legislative seats. And then you saw Virginia again this year. My point is our folks are energized. Long term, I mean, they got to do what they got to do constitutionally. I can tell you politically, it actually helped us in Virginia this year. It probably helped us to the shock of everybody in Kentucky. And I will make the argument it helped us in Louisiana, because if you looked at the first round of voting, there was not a lot of excitement in the African-American community. They didn't come out and vote. Boy, they came out the second time to help John Bell So a couple things. First of all, I was struck in the reporting today that there is some concern that you'll lose a few Democrats next week in the vote. Some moderates are getting cold feet about this. Now, it's obviously not going to change the outcome. President Trump will be impeached. There will be a Senate trial next week. But you lost two in the vote to begin the inquiry. Are you at all concerned that there may be some other moderates out there in swing districts, including perhaps some in Virginia, who may not go along? I cringe when I hear that. (laughs) I hope, Michael, that people vote because they vote what is the right thing to do and not because it will help them politically. And that really bothers me when I read that. So 
for those that vote against the Democrats who vote against impeachment, I hope they're doing it for the right reason, that they don't believe there is enough there to have impeachable offenses. Too many politicians today, they put their finger up in the air, want to see which way the wind's blowing. I'm always proud. You know, when I lean in on something, I do it. And let the chips fall where they may. I restored Let more the record show rights. you're right about that. Um, yeah. Listen, you, I restored you, more you. felon rights than any governor in the history of America. What happened? Republicans sued me, took me to Virginia Supreme Court. I got sued for contempt. I kept fighting because I believed in it. So he's going to be impeached in the House. It's going to go to the Senate. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to throw him out of office. But I do everything we've seen. They're doing their constitutional duty. I mean, the guy abused his office. I mean, we all know the facts of what actually happened. And you can't let it continue because he will only get worse. I have known this man for 25 years. Trump, in full disclosure, he gave me $25,000 when I ran for governor in 2009. When I was DNC chair, when I was helping the party, this man was a Democrat his whole life. And you'd hit him up for money. Of course. This whole thing is a charade that he's a Republican. It's not a Republican party. He's Trump. I mean, who are we kidding here? He never, he was pro-choice, he was pro-gay rights, this whole new thing with the evangelical community. Are you kidding me? Come on. So the point is, he has no moral core. He doesn't care about an issue. I dealt with him extensively. I was chairman of the National Governors Association. His first year in office, I dealt with him on immigration, on ICE detainers, on health care. I'd get an agreement with him. 24 hours later, he'd go the other way. Somebody got to him in the White House changed his mind. He didn't care that he shook my hand. You shake my hand, you take it to the bank. So you're saying that the Democrats are going to take back the White House. Yeah. But aren't you worried about complacency? I mean, aren't you worried that, uh, I mean, it's not going to be a cakewalk, right? No, no. It, so what should Democrats be worried about in this yeah, race? Yeah, I go just the opposite. I think because of impeachment, it has moved some Democrats out of complacency. It's reminding them every single day of why, you know, politics matter. All of the stuff in the paper in September and October leading up to the November elections in Virginia about all the insanity he had done with Ukraine and everything around it, people were paying attention. So I, I no, not complacency. Now, we can't take anything for granted, but you're gonna, you can't tell me we're not going to find 77,000 votes in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania. So you're saying that the Democrats can expand the electorate. Trump has kind of reached his, his seal. Yeah, yeah. Here's what I'm saying. Trump's got his voters. He's not expanding his base. We are. Okay. But let me ask you this. Sure. Because one of the things you said about why Democrats are doing yeah. well, you talked about Louisiana. You talked about the African-American vote. Yeah. African-Americans are energized. We are now 50-some-odd days away from the Iowa caucus, and there are no top-tier African-Americans in the Democratic field. Kamala Harris is out. Yep. Cory Booker isn't getting traction. Yep. Does that worry you? No, because there is huge, broad support today in the African-American community for Joe Biden. Today, they overwhelming. The poll out in Texas today had him winning by 20. South Carolina, he's leading because of the African-American vote. So is he your candidate, by the way, Biden? I can't. You know, I'm a CNN commentator now, which I got to be <laughs> oh, honest with you. That, that's one of the What's in my contract, excuses. Now, here's the what, best thing in the world. You can't endorse a candidate? No. It's in your contract? Yeah, absolutely. For everybody that's on. Is it but a lucrative contract for you? I love this idea you? that they pay me to talk. Are you kidding me? I would have paid them to talk. But don't tell CNN that. But whatever. But here's the point. The for biggest... the record, he's getting nothing from skullduggery. No, no, nothing. Right, right, right. Yeah. But here's the big point I want to make. You talk yeah. about Democrats and thews. He's not increasing his base. We are expanding primarily with suburban women. Look at what happened in Virginia. Prince William County, one of the most conservative Republican counties, one of the fastest growing in America, in Virginia, in northern Virginia. Corey Stewart, remember him, who was the Trump chair and crazy on the immigration issues and all that? We just made Prince William a blue county this year. Loudoun County, very similar, just turned Prince William, four of the new members, African-American. Loudon, African-American female, is now the chair of the board. My point, it's extraordinary what's happening. Suburban women have walked away from Trump. They have been disgusted from the beginning. But I think early on they said, you know, let's give it a try, da, da, da. But they, they're just tired of all of his attacking people and his negativity and his disrespect to women. They've had it. They don't like what they see on the border with 
children being held in cages. My wife just got back from a tour there. It is much worse than we are being told every single day. It is a disgrace what this administration has done. I want to get into the presidential race, sure. but just to button up on impeachment. And again, we're not talking to you as a constitutional scholar here, but you as a be, political Georgetown Law School. All I right. got an A. Okay. Law. <laughs> it's about the only one I did. I did that. I did very well. I think in that attack. All right. Well, about they, you should have been testifying as a constitutional <laughs> expert. Georgetown. Ben. The C's yeah. hire the B's and A's teach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the polls still show the country is split on this, even though there seems to be a consensus that what Trump did was wrong, probably indefensible, clearly uh, improper. But when you ask the question, does it rise to the level of should he be removed from office? If anything, the numbers have gone down a bit since November elections when you were winning in Virginia, and it's now pretty consistently less than 50%. Now, you went through the impeachment of Bill Clinton yep. as one of Bill Clinton's yep. strongest, most loyal supporters. Yep. And, the and arm- so did you. Well, I, <laughs> I went through way. it, but yeah. not as one of his <laughs> most loyal supporters. Yep. But look, the argument was made a partisan impeachment when there's not a national consensus is too uh, divisive for the country and not a good thing to do. You know, that's where we are right now, right? I mean, you know, this is going to be purely partisan. No Republicans at all in the House have signed on to this, and you clearly don't have a national consensus. I think by the time the November 2020 election comes around, impeachment is going to be long forgotten. I think the strategy of Pelosi and all to get it through the House quickly will be done, you know, next week. And then it goes to the Senate. That suggests that it's not serious. If, if the idea is let's just get this out of the way because we got an election coming up and we want to fight about that, the issues, then it's almost as though you're going through the motions just to punch the ticket of saying we impeach the guy. No, I think what they saw, you know, was a threat to our Constitution. They brought in 17 uh, witnesses, I mean, they didn't need any more. They brought as many witnesses as they need to talk about the phone call and the, the withholding of the $391 million and the idea that he couldn't get a White House meeting unless he went out and publicly did said he was going after the Biden. So, I, I mean, Michael, they had 17 witnesses, Trump appointees. So they had all the evidence they need. I would make them, don't drag it on forever. Um, I think during the Clinton thing, went on, you know, in, in the Senate. And, but, you know, I think uh, they're going to go through it. I think there's so much in the Trump administration every day. It's something new flack up in the air that, you know, it's hard for people to keep track of all of this. But that's part of the, you know, that's one of the critiques that this is, you know, the phrase has been used impeachment light. You got two articles, you know, one abuse of power, the other obstruction of Congress. Neither one is accusing the president of a crime, which is different than Clinton and Nixon. Do you understand why some people look at that and say, hmm, is this a really serious impeachment? I think you got to say, I mean, impeachment's impeachment. I mean, it's obviously the most serious things we can do. And uh, I think the House, I think Schiff's done what he had to do. He brought up the necessary witnesses. But listen, Trump's got, as you know, anywhere 40, 44 percent. He's got a solid base of support. Michael, they're not moving. As he said himself, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. It doesn't matter to them. So I just think people are in their corners politically. It is what it is. I think the biggest threat for Trump is this middle, the suburban women and others who just have been horrified by children being detained at the border and all the other issues around that. I think they're just disgusted with them. They're just disgusted. I can only tell you, you know, this isn't theory for me. I mean, I, you know, I ran the elections this year in Virginia. I, I live by data. You look at our turnout, and is that going to subside in the next 11 months? I don't think so. I really don't. And as I say, we took over two Republican counties. One is red as red can be. Let's talk about the uh, the Democratic race for a second. But my you, point is you got to run a good campaign, and you got to have yeah, all the other pieces. Right, of course. Nothing can be taken for granted. So you, as Isakoff said a minute ago, were a huge advocate of the Clintons. You With them every step. very closely, yep. both of them, all the way. Yep. They were known for moving the Democratic Party to the center at a time when that clearly was the right thing to do politically. The party has moved 
at least maybe not the grassroots of the party as much or the larger democratic elective, the grassroots probably, yes, the party has moved to the left, much more progressive. And you're seeing this battle play out in this democratic field with Biden and Buttigieg taking the more moderate side and then Warren and and Bernie, these are the leaders. So this is the, on the more progressive side, so this is the debate that is playing out in this party. Yeah. Where do you stand? Yeah. What do you think ought to happen? And yeah. and what impact is this debate having on uh, on the party and on the uh, prospect for the Democrats to take back the, the yeah, First, I think it's a false debate. Uh, first, we, we haven't had one vote cast in the presidential, so let's see where we actually go. I can tell you that the people who won in the 2018 House of Representatives were moderate in the middle. You look at the people who just won in Virginia in our General Assembly. But, you know, this debate of left versus right, we've got common goals. I mean, you can look at what I did. I clearly had the most progressive record of any governor of Virginia history. But I also had a record amount of jobs and business growth because without this, you can't have the other. To me, it's more about results-oriented, and I haven't liked the debates in the beginning when we come, they, they all have these little fancy little objects up there, Medicare for all, the new Green Deal. People at home are worried about, you know, how much am I paying for my prescription drugs when I go down to the, the drugstore every single week? We, we weren't focusing on the things that matter to the American public, and I think that's what we have to really focus on. I think the Medicare for all, that argument bothered me. Because it got voters, we lead on health care, Democrats. We, we clearly, that is a huge advantage because they think the Democrats will do a better job in health care. And that just confused people watching the debates. I think it was a mind-numbing. They turned it off. They heard it's going to cost $20 trillion that, you know, all these people are going to lose their private insurance. It became a huge negative. Now, I give Bernie Sanders tremendous credit. This is who he is. He put his price out there. And said, if you don't like it, don't vote for me. I respect someone like that who does that. I think others have had problems because they've tried to play cute with it or not. At the end of the day, we got to focus. Talking about Elizabeth Warren. I think she had, I think one of the reasons she's having a problem today is some embraced it, wouldn't say how they're going to pay for it. And voters are smart. They want to know how you're going to pay for it. I do give tremendous respect to Bernie Sanders. He said, here's what it is. Here's what it's going to cost. Take it or leave it. I, I really like politicians like that. So the latest chapter in this fight between progressives and moderates has been on uh, college education, free college education, yeah. which Warren and some of the other progressives yeah. are pushing for. Buttigieg has come out and said, let's not give free college education to the billionaires. We don't have to go that far. I agree with him on that. So you agree with him on that. Listen, and here's the difference. This is why... I think we should have a governor as president. Unfortunately, all the governors are gone. They're all blown out. We've actually done all of this. No offense to Congress and the senators. They talk all day. You know, I didn't have a filibuster as governor. I had a balance of budget. I had a $109 billion by name budget, 110,000 state employees. I had to build roads. I had to fix roads. I had to deliver health care. I had to deliver education. That's what we do. And my point, let's say, on education, I mean, I came up with a first-in-the-nation workforce performance development grant. You go get one of my workforce credentials because I need the workers in Virginia now. I'll pay two-thirds of the cost. The state will. you got to put up a third. I want everybody to have something on the table because I want you incentivized to continue to show up and get that credential every single day. But, you know, why are you paying for Terry McAuliffe's five kids to go to school? So, so look, I can uh, pay for that. So you, by all accounts, even by a lot of Republicans, thought that you had a very good uh, yeah. Governorship, yeah. Um, and when you came out of that, you took a look. Yeah, I spent uh, at a year looking for president, a yeah. hard look at running for president. You bet. I did. And ultimately, you decided what you didn't have a path. Why did you decide yeah. to run for president? I spent a year. I think I went to twenty-five states. Um, I thought a good Southern Democratic governor, born in New York, most progressive, more restoration rights, more pardons, reform, criminal justice, juvenile justice. Also had a very pro-jobs, hundreds of thousands of new jobs created, 1,147 new companies I recruited. I thought that was a great message. Two things. One, I always was banking on Joe Biden not running. He is a big piece in the middle of that puzzle in sort of the similar space. And I think he, you know, you know, had a big name and was going to be able to do what he needed to do. That was a piece of it. But more importantly, when I was in this final decision-making process, and I was hiring people the week I'd made my final decision, we had some issues, as you know, in Virginia with the leadership on our top three elected. We had the chance for the first time in 26 years to win the House and the Senate. 
I had dinner with Senator Mark Warner, who on a, I think on a uh, Thursday night came to see me. I said, you're the only guy who can run this state, fix it, put this party together. We're going to lose this opportunity. The state party came to see me. Many of the leadership of the state, House and Senate, came to see me on a weekend and said, we need you back home. So, so you are running for governor. I haven't made Virginia. that decision. I'm clearly looking at it. But that, and so I went back and I spent, as you probably read in the Washington Post, it was a funny story, 131 events in four months. Yeah. I, I took over, which was great. Actually won the cornhole contest when this uh, James Madison student actually at a huge outdoor event challenged me, said, I am the champion of JMU. I said, let's go. Okay, you got to tell our listeners what the cornhole contest is exactly. You know, it's it's two planks of wood yeah. with a hole in the middle and you're about, you know, 30 yards apart and you throw bean bags. Yeah. And uh, in order for me to win at the end, I had to get four straight cornholes. I tossed four straight cornholes. Boom. Won it. The JMU champ, Duke, went down. <laughs> All right. So you the cornhole So I made champion, the right decision. But, I, you didn't, but you didn't run yeah. for president. Any regrets? You know, Michael, you've known me a long time. I'm not a regret type of guy. I get out of bed. I am ready to go. Boom, boom, boom. I'm happy that we won the House and Senate. I don't think it would have happened if I hadn't jumped in. We had This was teamwork. We all did it. Great candidates, all the outside groups, the state party. But I feel good. But, you know, I always wanted, I mean, I would love to have run. I dreamed about the debate stage with Donald Trump. I mean, <laughs> press were very upset that, that I got out because they dreamed. You could have sold tickets to that baby. I would have taken that butter bean on. Are you kidding me? Boom. I mean, God, I would have loved it. All right. All right. But look. What? The, the, one of the reasons you didn't do it, as I'm you pointed these guys out. Saying, okay, that's a clip we need to cut <laughs> yeah, for yeah. social media. Right. Okay, you got it, Sam? You guys all know Try butter bean, don't you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> that plus the cornhole. Yeah. yeah. We should get yeah. a video of that. But Michael, look. have you ever played honestly cornhole? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, in the okay. backyard. You That's it. Yeah, games, that was right. a big game yeah, in Syos in Long Island where he grew hey, up. They yeah. played a lot of cornhole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you um, get a cooler beer. And can more. we uh, get serious here? Yeah. <laughs> it's well, like, serious all right, look, home. one of the big reasons, you, yeah. as you pointed out, was yeah. Biden. And once you, I gather, you got a message he was going in in April when you announced oh, I went over and spent three hours at dinner with him. And he told you he was getting in. Yeah. I yeah. went over and had okay. a lot. Well, yeah. All right. Clearly, there's been some unease since then. <laughs> about whether he's got the wherewithal at his age to you know see this through and you know we've seen that at times after some of the shaky performances in the debates um he's been nicked a bit by the stories about his son and his role in in yep. ukraine that's clearly one of the reasons bloomberg has gotten in because he doesn't think biden can be that centrist candidate if it looks like he's faltering Will you reconsider? I no, and I don't. Absolutely think, not. I'll, I'll tell you why. First of all, filing deadlines are up. Alabama, I think, is done or about to be done. I mean, the filing deadlines are very close at hand for these states. I think we've got what we've got. I think Duval Patrick got in. I you uh, haven't heard his name <laughs> since he got in. <laughs> He's not going anywhere, right? I mean, yeah. it's just hard. Yeah. You know, Bloomberg had a long chat with him the other day. I know Bloomberg very well. In fairness, he was very supportive when I ran for governor. And I bet you over the last six years in Virginia through our elections, I bet you he's probably written us $20 million on climate change, on gun prevention. So, you know, he's been a huge advocate of the things I've tried to do in Virginia. I think where we are today, today, Pete's probably, they say, winning in Iowa, you know, just spitball. And that's probably good for Biden not having Warren win Iowa, New Hampshire. What do you make of him, by the way? I like him. Young, bright, smart. He's got to deal with the issue of the African-American community. You cannot win a Democratic primary with, you know, very little black support. Well, he's got to figure that out. I mean, lay plans out, sit with them. Very loyal constituency. Um, Obviously, through all my efforts, I the African-American community, huge supporters of mine in Virginia. But, you know, he's he's got an opportunity there. I mean, today, Biden is still, Michael, where he was when he got in. In fact, he's a point or two higher. But look, one of the reasons you, you... you make the point about the filing dead, deadlines, and that's true. Yeah. But it also, when you talk to a lot of people who have been around the process for a while and looking at the way this thing is going to lay out, they think it's, it's, there's a good chance that 
you know, March, April, there will not be a nominee at that point, uh, that this is going to be so fractured that there will be, you know, we may actually have an open convention. So back to my question, yeah. might you reconsider? Well, sure. If we got to an open convention, I'd, o- I'd always serve if called. <laughs> but it's interesting to okay, say that. We got our headline. There you go. There you go. You know, if called to serve. But, so here's where we go. So you yeah. got the four early contests. And today, let's say Pete wins, Iowa, and Warner, Bernie wins New Hampshire. Today, Joe maybe wins Nevada and South Carolina. Then you got to go March 3rd in what, 16 states and two territories? It's like 38% of the delegates on one day. That is going to be a huge day for really narrowing down the field. And it's all proportional, right? I mean, you got to get 15%. That's a very good point. Yeah. Where I think Biden, because of his strength and his long term in the party and everybody, he has an ability of getting 15% in all these congressional districts. You know that. Some of the others don't. But I'm saying if you win California, you don't get all of California's no, you delegates. Get, right. You get yeah. proportional. Proportional. Right. And that behooves, that helps Biden, I would make the argument to that. Now, does he have the money to go all the way through? I think he's got to show us in this next report that he has the sustainability. So now you've got Bloomberg, who stays out of the first four, and he's now going to come in. Does he spend $300 million on March 3rd? What does that do? I can't answer that today. But you can't turn on a TV in Northern Virginia today Every three minutes, there's a Bloomberg ad. Does that bother you, by the way, that a New York billionaire can spend hundreds of millions of dollars on TV ads and to try to make himself president? I think he needs to be, I think it's a valid point. I think he needs to be careful because the more they see the ads, if it's oversaturation, people say, well, I don't want you to buy this thing. I wish he had, I know he's not going to take any outside money. I wish he had decided to do that because I think it's important to show grassroots support. I wish he had built it. But you know what happens if you got a lot of money is you've learned these, you know, they can go out and buy these names. And that's what a lot of the candidates done, which is unfortunate. But I do think you need to show support of people willing to write that, you know, $10,000, $2,500 check. But it, it's also, it's, it could hurt him because people say, I don't like someone coming in and buying it. And I know Tom Steyer's bought a lot of ads in Iowa. So, you know. Well, let me ask you about yeah. your friend Hillary Clinton. Sure. Because she's... Uh, Dropped some hints here and there. Maybe she's having fun with the media. Uh, but uh, do you, first of all, do you think there's any chance that she would get in? But short of that, did she take a look at it? Did she have a serious conversation? Have you talked to her about possibly entering this Democratic race? I think zero chance she gets in. Okay. Now, but should zero. she be out having fun, yeah. throwing some shade your way and you know having a good time with this? Absolutely. Do people, people, I probably get, 25 to 30 a day. Terry, I wish you'd run, bah, 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 bah. You can probably magnify that by a 1,000 to her, I would assume. I mean, so let's be honest. Every day people come, you know, come on, it's going to get in your head. But she also knows the reality. She had her shot. And she also knows, as I talked about, these filing deadlines and things like that, that it is a very difficult But problem. did she look at it? I don't. Listen, um, I think a lot of people, I think she listened to people talking to her, but always in her mind, she wasn't going to run. And there's nothing wrong with her listening. To, I listen yeah. to people. I mean, yeah. I did, someone last night for 20 minutes gave me a pathway <laughs> to the White House. You know, you know. By the way, yeah. how you were obviously, you know, yeah. so close to them for so many yeah. years and you were with her in, yeah. in uh, 2016. 2008, I was chair of her campaign. Uh, right, 16, right. I was governor. Right. So I had so, to... Did you see it coming that Trump actually was going to win? It so it was so stunning to so many people, including the top echelon of her campaign. How did they miss it? How did they blow it? How did, did she not go to Wisconsin? You know, just give us your take on. Yeah, and I wasn't in any it. of the data because I was actually yeah. governor of a state that time. The one thing I told her in the sixteen election was, "I'll run the state for you. Don't worry about it." You're going to win the state. You don't even need to come. And I think she came once. We did an event in Alexandria. Or they, then she did an event with... Well, Scott Walker was governor of Wisconsin, so she didn't have that assurance yeah. <laughs> when, yeah, she yeah. Did, when they no, chose no, not I, to go to Wisconsin. My point is, so I can't give yeah. you the data of yeah. how Bill... I, you know, I could... About the campaign, but I didn't see it coming. I really didn't. You know, I have mutual friends who know Trump very well. I've sold some companies years ago of people who know Trump well, and they would give me... Trump never thought he was going to win. On election day, he told he told a very good friend of his, who's a good friend of mine, 
that, uh, you know, I'm probably going to lose by 10. But it's been a great ride. It'll be great for my business. And I'm going to go on a six-week vacation and talk about possibly, you know, starting a uh, cable channel. This is the morning of the election. And as you know, because you, you know, you're on TV, you talk to all these folks on TV. At 4 o'clock that afternoon, all of the campaign operatives were calling cable, blaming each other. You know, it was, you know. Reince's fault or it was bad, you know. So, I mean, no, nobody actually saw this coming. I felt very good. I saw the Virginia numbers all the time. I said we'd win by 200,000. We did. We won by 216, I think. But I, I didn't see it. But I should have and we should have. When Comey did what he did 10 days out, and I remember it like reopening it was, the reopening investigation. Invest- I remember like it was yesterday. Yeah. I was a meeting in the governor's mansion, and I was sitting out in the backyard. We were having a meeting out there. And one of my aides came and handed me a note that said that Comey has reopened the investigation. And I got to tell you, and as you say, I've known him, vacationed with him, known him for years. I even said to myself, holy cow, this is really, really bad. Because historically, there is no way justice would do this 10 days before an election. There is no way. There's got to be something of such magnitude. I was concerned that day. And so, you know, I called Robbie and others in the campaign and basically said there was nothing there, blah, blah, blah. And then it comes out that these were all duplicates and he never should have done it. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but what Comey did, what he did 10 days after the election, we lost independent women overnight when that people said, enough. That was really probably the most damaging thing that happened. And I probably at that point should have, because I didn't see it in our Virginia numbers, but I probably and others should have seen that this was a... This was a big red warning sign that people. This was a, this was this was too far. Okay, too let me let me ask you a uh, question about a critique of your possible, likely gubernatorial run in um, Virginia. Uh, possible, I think. Do we, we keep it there? I have a lot of options uh, in life. Here's right. the Washington so, Post headline, by the listen, way. Listen, I want to be Pope. I want to be Brady's backup quarterback. I mean, a lot of things I want to get done. McCall of Hire suggests well, he's interested in the art of the possible. Pope is not going to happen. Second <laughs> bid for Virginia well, governor. I don't get out of bed thinking something. By the way, possible. here's a trivia but, question for you before yeah. you ask me who yeah. is the last governor to serve right, two terms one. not consecutively? There's only one. Yeah, I, I know the answer to Mills this. Godwin. That's right. Um, well, and what's unique about his two runs, Michael? Well, they weren't obviously weren't consecutive because you right. can't but in Virginia. By one term. But right? he was a, he was a segregationist, massive resistance guy the first time around, if I recall correctly. He, and then, he ran the first yeah. time and won as a Democrat. Right. And came back as a Republican yeah. during the McGovern years. Right, right. So your state, um, the current leadership of your state, you alluded to this before, you have a governor and an attorney general, both of whom in an extraordinary week last February had to acknowledge that they uh, dressed up in blackface earlier in their lives. You have a lieutenant governor who was dealing with sexual assault allegations, which he's denied. And here you are, you've already been governor once. You're a white guy and you're what looking for it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're looking for a do-over yeah. here. Okay. And, and you know, there are people in your state who have sure. said, and in, in your party, who have said, he ought to step aside. It's time for a uh, woman governor of Virginia, which, am I right? You've never had a woman governor in Virginia. No, we just uh, had our first woman speaker, Eileen Phillips. There you go. Kind of like uh, or an African-American governor. What We've do you say to that? We've only had one statewide, uh, Mary Sue Terry, who is our attorney general. So what do you say to that? Uh, well, first, I don't so. hear that much, but whatever. I mean, I've, I've got a lot of encouragement yeah. to run. Actually, both sides. I mean... It was a very, people were very happy. I remind you that I inherited, when I walked into office, one of the largest deficits in the history of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Four years later, I left the largest surplus in the history. Our economy was gone. We rebuilt it, became the number one state for cyber, data, unmanned systems, but very progressive agenda on criminal justice reform, what we did uh, reforming our state. I mean, when I took office, remember, we had a huge scandal with the former governor. I put a $100 gift man in. I mean, before I took office, you could literally give me a million dollars. It was legal. You had to report it. We ended all of that. We focused on those big issues that matter to people every single day. So people were very happy. If I decide to run, it would be on an agenda of taking Virginia to that next level. Uh, A lot of things we got done, a lot of things I would like to have gotten done, but I had a very right-wing Tea Party legislature 
who fought me on everything. I had 120 vetoes, the most of any governor in the history of the state. I never lost one. Very close, thanks to my Democrats. You tried to get the Medicare expansion, which you couldn't get because, although Virginia eventually did We got it, it done. In fact, at my inauguration, the speaker, a guy named Bill Howell, said, you will never get it as long as I'm speaker. You will never get a vote. I will never let you have it. But I didn't give up. You know, I worked it like a dog. I tried to use executive authority. So I used my powers to put it in the budget to get other parts of it. I got pregnant women, you know, dental care for the first time in Virginia history, thousands of women. But they fought it. And it really bothered me because the way and I so the listeners understand it was two point two billion a year, 400,000 Virginians. I would say to my legislators, I can bring $2.2 billion back. We've paid it in. We get it all back. 400,000 people get health care. I can save rural hospitals. I got an opiate crisis. I got a mental health crisis. I can deal with all of those issues. And I can create 40,000 new jobs. And I structured it. And the way I did it was when it comes off the 100%, the hospitals agreed to pay the difference. So I would go to the speaker and say, it won't cost the state a penny. Because their argument is, oh, it'll bankrupt the state, blah, blah. Write a bill that not a penny of state money can ever be used. They wouldn't do it. Now, I was smart when I left. I do the budget, the outgoing budget for the new governor for Ralph for two years. <laughs> I embedded it in my outgoing budget. And if they took it out, they were going to have to come up with like a half a billion dollars of, of taxes. So at the end of the day, I got it through the process working on. But here's the thing that bothered me. You know, I entertained a lot as governor. I'm the first governor. I put a kegerator in my mansion. I would bring the republic. I'd bring them over every night. A kegerator? Yeah, I'm the only That's one. That's like a, it's a, like a, a an electric keg. And I'd bring my uh, craft get blues. One of those. Oh, you got to get it. it. Was great. And I entertained every night. I'd bring them over and work them. You know, try to you know whatever, do what I got to do. And, and they'd say to me, you know, governor, I'd vote for it. I really would. I know what's right in my rural community, but I can't. I say why? Because I lose my Tea Party primary. And to me, this is what I hate about politics. They knew the right thing to do was to vote for it to help their citizens who are dying of opiate addiction and fentanyl, but they wouldn't do it because they were afraid of a primary where, you know, maybe 12,000 people come out and they were going to lose their job that paid $17,000 a year. Are you kidding me? Really? This is why you're in politics. This is what drives me wild. People are not in it for the right reasons. Tell us about your book, Beyond Charlottesville, Taking a Stand Against White Nationalism. People always say to me, best, worst day, Governor, best day, when I stood on those steps in April of 2016 and restored the rights of 206,000 felons, as I say, the largest enfranchisement in U.S. history. And I stood where in 1902, a state senator by the name of Glass put it in our Constitution. And his quote that day was, I am doing this to eliminate the darkie from being a political factor in Virginia. Carter Glass of the Glass-Steagall Act. It's exa- very yeah. good, Michael. Yeah, yeah, we'll get you yeah, a little history little, puff. Uh, You're exactly uh, right. People didn't know he was from Virginia. Yeah. And he did that. So I stood, and, and I'm that was a great day. My worst day was in August when a 1,000 neo-Nazis and white supremacists came into our state from 35 states. Friday night at University of Virginia, when you're standing there, on the lawn, looking up at the mountain there, it's all dark. All you could see was a trail of hundreds of people marching with torches, saying, Jews, you will not replace us, blood and soil. You know, all the Nazi Germany chants. They were coming down this mountain. It was frightening. And then Saturday, coming through the streets of Charlottesville, all with swastikas. Every African-American was an F and N word. Every woman was the F and C word telling folks in front of the synagogue, we're going to burn you like we burned you in Auschwitz. We had to have the Torah taken out the back door by the state police. So I was actually in Northern Virginia. I, you know, you don't want the governor in the command center when this is happening. And I, I go through all the lead up to it. And then I flew down that afternoon because you don't want the governor on site because, you, you know, I had a thousand state police and my National Guard. And Brian Moran was my secretary of public safety. And Colonel Flaherty and General Williams were my three in the command center. And I talked to Trump that day. And he called me. It was pretty funny because, you know, usually one o'clock in the morning, my phone would ring and it was operator one. And please hang on for the present. That went on for years. It had been a while since operator one <laughs> had given me a rattle. And she said uh, the president would like to talk to him. 
And the president gets on the phone and understand, I've known him and I've dealt with him now as chair of the governors. And I explained to him the situation that had happened down there about these horrible people, the things they were saying, the things they were doing. And I told him on the phone call, I said, you know, Mr. And I had real battles with him on immigration. I went to Dulles. I was the first elected official when they, remember, they detained folks coming in from the country's yeah, ban. Yeah. And I had a press conference. I, I had three Virginia U.S. citizens being detained for five hours without access to legal counsel. It the so-called, airport. that was the Muslim ban. In, yeah, uh, in, this yeah. is America who'd come yeah. in from the five countries yeah. or whatever. And so, and I'd fought with them on the detainers. They were stopping people coming out of churches for no reason and arresting people. The woman they took away from her children because she was driving with a broken taillight. So I pardoned her, gave, took away the underlying crime. They still deported the woman. Her two little kids hanging on the window of the van as a, just awful. So, he and I had had real, and I talk about all that in the book. And I said, Mr. President, you have got to stop this hate speech. I said, you really are creating divisions in America. And I said, I can tell you, as a governor, you're hurting my economy. You're scaring people. And they heard the word economy, and he went off, oh, greatest, da, 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 you know, normal. <laughs> and at the end, though, he came back and said, you know, Terry, you're right. He said, I want to work with you on this. I said, great, Mr. President. He said, I'm going to do a press conference. I said, great. I'll wait for mine. I'll let you do yours first. I said, I'm flying down to Charlottesville to do mine. He said, I'm going right out and doing it. I said, great. He was in New Jersey. I waited half an hour, hour, hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours, three hours. Obviously, what happened after he talked to me, I don't know if it was Bannon or Miller or whoever, got to him and said, no, sir, you will not condemn neo-Nazis and white supremacists. You will not mention their name. And he didn't when he came out and said there were good people on both sides. That, to me, was his most morally bankrupt moment in his presidency. And I had told the president, I said, Bill Clinton at Oklahoma City, you had Barack Obama, the issues that he dealt with in Charleston, and you had Bush. Had not, there, this is a time for you to stand up. And he failed that day. So the first third of the book talks about the history of Virginia, the racist issues we've had. John Lewis, Congressman Lewis, writes the foreword for me. The second third of the book is all about, I mean, I had secretly embedded state police into these groups. I knew for two months what was happening. You knew it was good, that they were planning We this knew that they were coming rally? to bring weapons and to hurt people. You bet. And I talk all about that in the book. We had a very good idea of what was going to go on. We didn't know about the Friday night. The university did, but we didn't, unfortunately. At the state and the city knew. We didn't know. But Saturday, we had a good idea. And I go through all the preparations and what was done. The last part of the book, most importantly, is where do we go from here? Racism exists in this country. We, I think for far too long, people had swept it on the wrong. Well, we've dealt with it. It's not a big issue. It's not a comfortable topic for white people to have. But I talk about where we need to go. As long as we have inequities in school, you got young African-American kids in a school that doesn't have the same quality teacher or not same facilities. That's racism. You can call it whatever the heck you want. Is Trump a racist? Yes. Yeah. And I don't say that like some off the cuff. It's just, you know, the things he has said and he's done. And why did these thousand people do this? So they, they said they're going to take the Robert E. Lee statue down. I quote all these people in the book. They came because Trump had made them feel comfortable that they could say these things in public. In the old days, people used to wear hoods and they do it at night. You can walk down the middle of Charlottesville and they say, Trump says this stuff, I can do it. I think when Barack Obama got elected, I think for many, that was a real hard moment that they had a black president of the United States, but they didn't really act on it. Trump comes in and lights the fuse. And Charlottesville was the epicenter of all of that hate coming together. Did you ever go back to Trump, speak to him again about this? No. No, I... Um, it was his worst moment, and that was August, and you know, I was leaving office four months later, and at that point we'd moved into the campaign for my, you know, for Ralph and all that. So I didn't see him again. He knows, I know people, as I say, who talked to him, he knows that he failed that day. And then remember, he came out and doubled down again, remember? Yeah. I mean, how hard is it to condemn white national? So I went out and did my press conference that night. The whole world was watching. I said what he should have. Get the hell out of Virginia. Get the hell out of America. You're not wanted here. We don't want you. You're a disgrace. I said, you're a bunch of cowards. And they all prayed around like they were big, you know, these, you know, big heroes. They're a bunch of cowards. 
So back to uh, one of the points Danny was making earlier, Kamala Harris has dropped out. Cory Booker may not even be on the stage. You're going to have a de- the next Democratic debate is going to be all a bunch of white people. Yeah, I wish it were different. I mean, it, uh, it, it, that's, it, that's a problem. American votes one of our most loyal constituencies year in and year out. I agree with you. Does a minority? I wish Kamala had not gotten out, but I mean, listen, what, as you know, because you know you've covered this forever, it's not like your ideas aren't good anymore. You just plain run out of money, and at some point, you just can't fund your operations, and that's why people have begun to drop out. So she obviously had had made that decision, and on the other hand, you know, I think from the DNC's perspective, you do have to put some. Otherwise, we would have twenty four candidates. Every debate. And and listen, I'm the chairman who started these debates. I put them together. We didn't have them before 2004. I did the debates. To me, we got them going to give lesser known candidates an opportunity to have a media forum in the nation. They didn't have any of that before I did this in 2004. So, you know, it's a hard place we're in. But the African-American community, very loyal. And listen, there is no African-American support for Donald Trump. None. Zero. Nor should there be. The man is well, a disgrace. There's, there's diamond and silk, and those uh, <laughs> singers or whatever they are. Yeah, know. I mean, it's... Uh... <laughs> I got one last political question. It occurs to me listening to you talk and knowing your background working yep. for Bill Clinton, this young, phenomenally gifted politician and former governor. You're a governor. Yeah. In this race, we've got a bunch of senators. Yep. We've got, you know, a couple of uh, mayors from, you know, midsize or small towns. we got, at this point, no governors. Yeah. Why, what happened to, I mean, it used to be that that was the path for Democrats to the White House, to be yeah. a governor. So what things. happened with yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, no, I've thought about this long and hard. A couple of things. Number one, the governors don't have the exposure that a senator has. You have a Gorsuch hearing or a Kavanaugh hearing or whatever it may be. Millions and millions of people watch on TV. You know, people were not like saying, oh, my God, look what Terry's doing on Route 66. Ad, Addie. <laughs> yeah. You know, we just don't have It's that. the media environment, social media. Social media, big. Number two, very important. All most of these Senate candidates transferred tens of millions of dollars to start their campaign. Governors are not allowed to do that. We can't transfer one single penny because ours is non-federal money. My, I had a very healthy, hefty email list. I'm not allowed to use that. So governors, unlike senators and members of the House, they can use their email list. They can transfer unlimited money from their federal account. We have to start at ground zero. And that's a huge disadvantage. And where maybe the earlier contests are slewed toward the left, governors aren't in the sense that, as I say, you know, we got to produce every day. We got to balance budgets. You know, we've got to do things. And that would put you more sort of, I guess, what you want to call the moderate lane. You've got to negotiate with your legislatures. We got to get stuff done. No offense to senators. They don't have to get anything done. They get to talk all day. We don't. We got to balance budgets. I got to make very hard decisions how I'm going to spend money, and if we don't have money, where do I cut? These are hard decisions. Which roads do I build? How much do I invest in schools? Which schools do I open? But I'll bet that's why you love the job. Would love, yeah. Why you loved it the first time and why you would love to do it another time. Danny, let me tell you something. People ask me this all the time. There is not another job in the world where you literally can get out of bed and help someone. And as you know, I had more executive orders than any governor of Virginia. This should surprise nobody at this table. <laughs> I loved using my authority to help people. And I did it every single day. And I didn't spend my time on the people who didn't. I worried about the people who needed help. I put the, I put the largest investment ever in K-12, a billion dollars, redid our schools, got rid of a bunch of tests, gave our teachers pay raises, the things that really needed to be done. Laid in on criminal justice reform. I had a young man, Lenny Singleton, who I pardoned. Listen to this. Lenny had committed five robberies. He was a drug addict. The most he stole combined was $535, okay? He was trying to steal for his drug habit, going into gas stations or whatever. $535, and nobody was ever injured. Guess what his sentence in the Commonwealth of Virginia was for $535? Five hundred thirty-five dollars. <laughs> I'd say five years. Okay, what was it? Two life sentences plus a hundred and thirty years. Oh come on, there must have been some other aggravating Zero. Uh, factors. Zero. 
Violence? No gun, carrying a gun? No. At one event, he had a butter knife, but nobody was injured. So my point is, and I pardoned him, unfortunately, he spent a lot of time in jail. And Lenny and I just got an award last year in New York for the Innocence Project, which I will give a shout out to the Innocence Project. They come into states and find the most egregious people with long sentences or, you know, Mike McAllister. I gave him a full pardon. This was a man on death row about to be put to death. Finally, some finally, after 20 plus years, someone else admitted to the crime. And when they put the guy who ultimately admitted the crime and put his picture next to Mike McAllister's, they looked like identical twins. My point is people have to be careful about this. So I'll tell you, I've got a 14-year-old daughter and a 16-year-old daughter. And these kids, and I know it, my friends and their children, they are passionate about these criminal justice reform yeah. issues. They and really if you're are. a young black kid in yeah. Yeah. the South— you're going to get a disproportionately long sentence. So my point is, I loved getting into all that. Boy, I got into it. I went into our two juvenile detention populations. I'm the first governor to go to both of these things. These are huge, concrete, massive security. These kids are 13 or 14 years old. I went in and did town halls to the, with these kids. I mean, they didn't even know what the governor was. But I said, well, how can I help you? You know, the one kid said, hey, governor, you say you want us to help learn, and we don't even have internet here. I, we can't even get online education. I said, that's not true. He said, it is true. I get in my car. I call my secretary, Karen Jackson of technology. I said, you've got 30 days to get Wi-Fi, internet in both these facilities. And we did it. And, you know, I kept going back. I finally shut one down. because, But I reduced that juvenile detention population by two-thirds. These are kids... You put them in there without any opportunity of success for the future. Now you get education opportunities. When you get out, we put you a pathway to school or into the workforce. You know, they're young. They make a mistake. People make mistakes at young age. we got to realize that. All right. It's um, December 2019. We may want to rerun this episode uh, the week of the brokered convention <laughs> for the Democrats Actually, uh, next I have a summer. Idea. Yeah. Yeah, the week of the brokered convention, yeah. we get an exclusive uh, with I think that's right. Governor McAuliffe, who yeah. is uh, uh, trying to get in on the first ballot. Second ballot. The second ballot. Remember, second, yeah. Which will be ironic. And what? the super delegates, they can't vote in the first, but then they can yeah. vote on the second. When's the last time there was more than a one ballot uh, nominee? 28? And was it? No. 1952, Adlai yeah, Stevenson, Adlai third ballot. Third ballot. Third ballot. Now, I haven't, <laughs> I didn't Google this, so somebody's going <laughs> to Somebody will do that right now. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right. All, All right. right. Well, listen, All right. Well, anyway, thanks for joining us. You bet. Thank you. Thanks to former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon. 